second week of Who Am I? And we're asking some of answering, trying to answer from a biblical standpoint, some of life's biggest questions. Last week on Easter Sunday, we talked about, do I even matter? And if you didn't hear that, I'd love for you to go back on our website and check that out, 68church, the number six, the number eight, church.com. And you can go check that out and get caught up with where we are. But today we're going to try to try to address the issue of, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. And I think a lot of us come to Christ with the, with, the, uh, with the false belief, the false assumption that we have done something that is unforgivable and we cannot be forgiven for whatever it is that we have done. And uh, if you've talked to people outside of the church, you probably know this is true, you know, I, I would never be accepted in church. I'd never be welcome in church because of what I've done. You don't know what I've done. If you knew what I had done, you wouldn't want me in your church. And so I think we need to address that. We as believers need to know how to answer this question uh, but so we're going to dig into this quite a bit this morning and just ask you to uh, keep up. I've got a lot of scripture I'm going to read for you, uh, but only one of them will be up on the screen. But if we look in our personal lives, we all probably know, we can all probably think of something that's maybe been done to us or something we know that was done to someone else that's unforgivable, right? We would say, that's unforgivable. I just, I just can't forgive that. And we probably often think, if we're willing to admit it to ourselves, and our, at least in our subconscious, we think there's a list somewhere of unforgivable sins. There's a list of things that God just will not forgive. And if you do these things that are on this list, then you're destined for destruction because you just can't be forgiven. I think we think that there are some of those things that, that exist, and I think we have people in our lives that would believe that there are some unforgivable acts. And right now, this week, I think, uh, some of us probably more than ever know that there are some unforgivable things. Anyone the victim of an April Fool's prank this week? Yeah, a couple of you. Okay, well, I want to look at, I want to go through a list. I've got some pictures up here of some of the uh, April Fool's pranks that I found. It says, I put a bowl of Skittles, M&Ms, and Reese's Pieces in the break room this morning and went in there at lunch to find this note. Whoever you are who did this has no soul, and I hope you are happy with yourself. It's just wrong, and you should be ashamed. <laughs> so that might be, I mean, you're expecting Skittles, and you eat a Reese's Pieces. That might be unforgivable. Let's see, look at the next one. Uh, do not open unless you plan to kill it. So you have no idea what might be under there, you know, big tarantula or something like that. It's probably actually nothing. Next one. Uh, so let me read this one for you. So there's pictures of Orbit Gum. This guy says, tomorrow is going to be a great day. For the last six months, I've been conditioning people to stop by my cube and take gum. Some people stop by multiple times a day. And you can see in the bottom left-hand corner, he has Play-Doh that he has cut into the shape of gum. And so people are going to be taking little chunks Yeah, that, one, that one's pretty harsh. Let's look at the next one. Uh, this one is uh, little Mentos and blocks of ice, so when people put cubes of ice into their pop. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, let's see, let's go on. I left a surprise for the next people who redo the carpet. I like that one. I think that's pretty good. 
Let's go on. Chewbacca Roar Contest. Call a phone number and leave a voicemail with your best impersonation. Winner will be judged and contacted by Friday, April 12th. Do not give them 360-818-4399. Yeah, here's a, he's filling donuts with mayonnaise. That's a pretty wrong, pretty wrong thing to do. These are escalating, by the way. These are just getting worse and worse, more and more unforgivable. Let's go on. Yeah, filling a tropical mist with bait spray, shrimp scent, replacing the label. <laughs> I laughed at that one for a long time when I found that. And finally, the worst one of all. <sighs> putting, uh, putting an onion in caramel and trying to pass it off as a caramel-coated or candy-coated onion. That, to me, is the one unforgivable, unpardonable sin. If you ever try to sneak an onion, God be with you. <laughs> you may as well just find another church because it's not going to go well for you here. <laughs> okay, well, seriously, though, Aren't there really things that are unforgivable? Aren't there things that if it were, if it were up to us, there would be some unforgivable things, right? If, it, if we were making the decision, if the choice was ours, there would be some things that would be unforgivable. If we got to decide that there would be certain crimes that just can't be forgiven, right? I mean, I know I have these feelings about some, some things that happen, some things you see. I mean, if you watch the news, you watch some of the awful, horrible things that are happening in our society and in the world around us, and I would think that has to be unforgivable. God certainly would not forgive that person. But if we're going to really answer this question, we have to dig into Scripture and see what Scripture says. I want to start, this will not be on your screen. If you want to pull it up, I would love for you to pull it up on your phone. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is where we're going to start. So if you have your phone or you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And I want to read through this uh, letter that Paul is writing to the Romans, trying to teach them uh, theology uh, in the Roman church. And uh, I want to try to read this and get a little bit of a foundation, and then we're going to go look at what Jesus actually taught about this topic. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. So he's stopping here. He's talking about Adam going all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. And it says, sin entered the world through this one man, Adam, and death now entered into the world through this sin. And in this way, death came to all people because of the sin that Adam committed. Now all who have followed after Adam have sinned. So that means all of us have sinned. Every single one of us, myself included, have sinned in this room. We have done things that are against God's order, God's way for our lives, and now we owe God something because we have sinned. Verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law. So now Paul is jumping ahead several hundred years, and he's jumped to the law where uh, the law was given to Moses, but he's talking about the time between between Adam and Moses, there was still sin in the world. It wasn't a time without sin. There just was no law to be held accountable to. Verse 14, nevertheless, 
Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. So now Paul is gonna turn a corner and he's gonna talk about the gift of salvation, the gift of grace, and he's gonna make a comparison about how the gift of grace is not like the trespass. And he's gonna make some contrast here said, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, so if many people died because of what Adam did, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So death came through Adam, but now the gift of righteousness, the gift of life comes through grace in Jesus Christ, and it overflows to the many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Let's read that again. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. So now he's comparing the one act of sin that Adam committed to the one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ dying on the cross, which brings justification to all people if they choose to accept it. Verse 19. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Listen to that again. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So if we just take, we kind of take his summary there and we come down to these last verses, verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5, says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So according to Paul, could there be a sin that is unforgivable? Because it sounds like if sin is increasing, grace is going to increase all the more, that, that we just get forgiven more if we've done more wrong things. But we need to dig into this just a little bit. But I want to propose to you this one thought, this one statement, that there is nothing that you have done that God's grace cannot overcome. There is nothing you've done that God's grace can't overcome. We think that there is. Oftentimes we build up things even in our own personal lives, things that we have done wrong that makes us think, makes us feel there's this one thing that I've done that God cannot forgive, but there is nothing that we've done that God's grace cannot overcome. Now let's go to our text, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 and 32. This is a little bit of a difficult passage, but Jesus is teaching and we need to deal with it because this is the place in the Bible where we find the most explicit answer to this question and some other stuff that is a little bit challenging. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus is speaking. He says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So Jesus starts in verse 31. He says, And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. So then, we have to ask the question at this point in time, is there anything, is there any sin that cannot be forgiven? This means yes, this means no. (laughs) Is there any kind of sin that cannot be forgiven? According to Jesus, no, there is not. But we have to understand the rest of the passage if we're going to get it. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. That's what Jesus said. Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. So there is nothing that you've done that God's grace cannot overcome. But then he goes on. He says, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, okay, is Jesus contradicting himself? Any kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Let's let's try to understand what Jesus is talking about here. Blasphemy against the Spirit. What does that mean? What does blasphemy against the Spirit mean? Well, blasphemy is defined this way. It means slander, detraction to, another good, to another's good name. So slander against another good's name. Well, Jesus said slander can be forgiven, so that's confusing, right? Blasphemy is impious and reproachful speech injurious to divine majesty. Impious or reproachful speech that hurts divine majesty, that that detracts, that tears down divine majesty. And so here Jesus says, blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. This is the one unforgivable sin. This is the one thing throughout all of Scripture that says cannot be forgiven. Well, let's talk about it. What was Jesus talking about when he's talking about this? Well, he says anyone who speaks uh, speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven. So Jesus is talking about himself. If you slander against me, if you speak against me, you're going to be forgiven. Why do you think Jesus was saying this? Remember, this is before he was crucified. And as best I can tell, I think this is where Jesus is going with this. Nearly all of Jesus' disciples abandoned him. They betrayed him leading up to the cross. They deserted him. They walked away. And you have the famous account of Peter denying Christ three times. He says, I don't know that man. I I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. Leave me alone already. That would be considered slander or blasphemy against the Son. And yet, if we look at them, the 11, aside from Judas, the 11 went on to lead the church. They, they started the church. They, they went and spread the gospel to, to all of the nations. They started it in Jerusalem, and they spread out through all of, the, all of the countryside, and then Paul took it even further, and then it just kept going and kept going. So somehow they must have been forgiven, right? They were forgiven for what they did to Jesus, but then they received the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts at what we call Pentecost, And from that point forward, they did not turn their backs on God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. So let's dig in a little bit deeper. Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, what makes this one sin the unforgivable sin? What is it that makes this sin unforgivable? 
First, we have to understand, you have to know, this, this has been debated for centuries. What did Jesus actually mean? This is a debate that has gone on for a long time. Today, I'm going to tell you, this morning, I'm going to tell you what I believe Jesus is saying. Now, I would, I would caution you to go do the research yourself. Go read the passage, study the passage, and see what it says. Read, read from scholars throughout all of church history and see what you can come up with when, a, when you come to a belief on this and see if what I'm teaching you is correct. Make sure that it's correct. And if it's not, come talk to me about it and we'll, we'll discuss it and see if, uh, if I need to change my belief, my understanding about this. But what I understand this to be at this point in time is once you have started following Jesus Christ, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So now, after Pentecost, what happens when somebody puts their belief in Jesus Christ, the minute we take that step of believing, putting our faith in, and believing in what Jesus did, reorienting our lives around Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible gift. We, we get that the moment we place our belief in Jesus Christ. So, once you've started following Jesus Christ and you've received that gift of the Holy Spirit, who will now dwell in you for the rest of your life on earth as a believer and empower you to live this Christ-like life and give you the tools necessary, give you the warnings you need to, to avoid sin. The Spirit does all of these things in the life of the believer. Once you have that and then to decide that you don't believe and to be slanderous and impious and reproachful about the Spirit of Christ that once lived in you, I think this is what Jesus is getting at that is the one unforgivable sin. So to have the Spirit in you and then to decide, you know what, I don't believe in the Spirit anymore. I'm going to speak ill of the Spirit. I'm not going to follow the prompts of the Spirit. I'm going to totally ignore the Holy Spirit in my life and decide from that point to turn away and fall away is the one unforgivable sin. Now we have to stop, though, here really quick because... This idea clashes harshly with some people's theology. It clashes harshly with, with uh, what would be called the once saved, always saved theology. Once you, once you pray this magical prayer, you're in, and nothing can happen to take you away. And so, uh, you know, we, we are affiliated with the North American Baptist Church, and so we would hold to the beliefs of, of that, except for... In this one area, I happen to disagree. Um, I grew up in a Wesleyan church, so there's Calvinism and there's Arminianism. Calvinism is tulip, if you've ever heard the phrase tulip, and, and they would believe in this idea that, that once you're in, you're in, and you can't do anything to walk away, and they would find a lot of scriptures to back up their point of view. And then what I grew up in was Wesleyan, and it's Arminian, and they would actually... They, don't, they wouldn't tell you that this is what they teach, but they essentially teach that you have to, on a constant basis, earn your salvation, and you are a constant risk. This is when it's, teach, when it's taught faultly, falsely and poorly, that you are at risk at any moment if you sin and you don't have the chance to ask forgiveness for it, you could die and go to hell. Now, that's not really the full, honest teaching of either of those theologies, but I think both of them have problems. I think both of them have struggles that, that are not accurate with all of Scripture. 
And I think what has happened in both camps, and I've spent a lot of time studying this because I grew up in this tradition of Arminianism and then I went to school and studied under Calvinism, and I've spent a lot of time going between the two. What I think is happening is we're trying to find within our own human logic ways to neatly and orderly come up with a systematized approach to what the Bible says. And we use our, our logic, which is a gift of God, but is still faulty and broken, to try to encapsulate the whole picture of God, and I think that is our mistake. I don't think we should be doing that. I don't think we should go that far. Yes, I think we should study God. Yes, I think we should study theology, but when our theology takes us to points that Scripture does not clearly depict, then I think we need to stop and let Scripture be the guide, and we haven't always done that as the church throughout history. So if you read your Bible and you try to, try to put on different lenses than what you believe and read just what you believe into Scripture and let Scripture teach, I think it's a little bit easier to let the Scripture speak the truth to us than trying to force all of Scripture into our belief system. Now, as Rob would tell you, that's impossible to do entirely. We have beliefs that are so ingrained in us that, that we can't always get them out when we're trying to read the Bible. But I think as best we can, we need to read Scripture and let Scripture speak, and then build our beliefs around it. So, this idea, this unforgivable sin, would clash with the idea that you can not lose your salvation. But I think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think Jesus is talking about someone who has put their faith in Christ, they've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then they speak against that, and they walk away from it, after they've received the gift. I think this is what Jesus is saying is the unforgivable sin. Uh, but I would also argue, and I have no, I, I have no way to really back this up, uh, I would argue that it's only unforgivable as long as the person stays in that mindset. John will tell us, in 1 John, we read this, uh, this was at the end, says, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. So John is talking about those sins that Jesus was talking about. Jesus said, and so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. And I think this is what John is addressing here in 1 John chapter 5. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. But then he says, there is a sin that leads to death. I am, saying, I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death, but there is this one sin that he's referring to, and I think he's referring back to uh, this sin of, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit that is the one that we shouldn't spend time praying for. Um, this is a hard topic. This is a hard thing. It's hard for us to know how to handle this, how to address it, because as we progress, at least here in the Northwest, in, in our society, in our world, it seems that we are surrounded by more and more people who, who are at least antagonistic towards Christianity, and maybe a, a decent-sized group of people who, have, who would claim they once believed, but now they are no longer following or living out the life. There's a word for that now. It's they, we call them the duns. The, the dun is, it's, they're done with church. So they, they're, they're just, they're gonna be out, they're not gonna come back, or there are some that have uh, what we call a nun. There's no religious affiliation whatsoever, which would be kind of an, an agnostic point of view, and that's kind of a fancy popular word getting thrown around right now, so while well, I'm agnostic, I'm, ag I'm agnostic. 
which is just really a fancy way of saying I don't really, uh, I don't really know what I believe and I don't want to spend any time trying to figure it out and I don't want to reorient my life around anything, so I'm just going to claim to not know anything about what I believe. That's my definition. Question came in. Uh, would a person who walks away after claiming to be saved be considered as someone who was never truly saved? That is a great question. I am so glad you asked that question. Because, and this is just me, this is my understanding, this is my, my, my thinking coming in here, so, so keep that in mind as I'm teaching you. My thinking is that question comes out of, out of being taught in this school of theology that says once you're saved, you're in, and you cannot do anything to lose your salvation. And so because we need to find a way to justify what happens when people who seem to once believe, and we even see fruit in their lives of following Jesus Christ, and then all of a sudden they stop believing and they, they walk away, we've, we have this feeling, I have to say, okay, well then, they just, they just were never believers, you know, they were never really saved in the first place. And that's, that's how we would answer that question in this, in this vein of theology of Calvinism is that, well, they just were never, they were never saved in the first place. But I always have to go back and ask the questions, what about the fruit? What about the proof? What about the evidence? What about the statements? It seems like, because I have known people in my life who were following Jesus Christ passionately, and they were producing the fruit of discipleship. They were, they were producing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which is the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And we were seeing the, the evidence that Christ had taken hold, and then short time afterwards, you know, sin kind of kind of lured them out of that, and they just decided they weren't going to go in that anymore. So, well, I don't need this. I'm j I just want to go and enjoy my life. So we would say, well, they were just never really saved. But what about the fruit? What do we do with the question of, of what has transpired in their lives when, during the time they were believers? And I think this is what makes this, according to Jesus, the one unforgivable sin. Because how can you taste of the goodness of God and choose to walk away? I think this is what's, what's coming, in, coming into mind when Jesus is talking, knowing full well what's going to happen after he ascends and the Spirit comes. He knows that believers are going to receive this promised, wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to have the gift of the Spirit in your life, empowering you to walk and live out this Christian, this Christ-centered life. And he, he knows that, and he sees as, and I think he's saying, how can you think about walking away from that? And when you walk away, it's no longer safe to assume that you're going to receive God's grace at judgment. It's a hard teaching, and I understand that. We don't like the teaching because it makes us uncomfortable, right? We don't like it because it's like, well, I don't, I'm a whole lot more comfortable with this idea that I can't ever lose it, and I can't ever do anything to, to, to lose it. And, and over here, they say, well, you can do a lot of things to, to lose it. I would say, however... I would say, and I'm going to get to this in just a second, that as long as you are, are working toward following Jesus Christ, and you're working towards, towards this gift, then you have nothing to worry about, and I want to explain that in just a second. Titus 3.5, somebody sent this in. Oh, I gave my grandkids bookmarkers. They said, ask Jesus in their heart, and their mom got mad saying, they believe in God, but not that. That's a, that's a good point. Well, ask Jesus in their heart if uh, is actually not, not necessarily scriptural or biblical teaching. That phrase is not in the Bible. I don't think that's something 
that uh, I think that we, we boiled it down to that idea. And um, so I don't think we need to react strongly against the idea of ask Jesus, asking Jesus into our heart. I don't think that's true because Christ, the Spirit of Christ does come into our heart, does come into us and dwell in us. Uh, but that's not the whole point. Um, it says, Titus 3.5 he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the gift that was done was all because of what Jesus Christ did, and I think that's very, a very good scripture to point in and point out is that that's very consistent with Paul is, was teaching in, in uh, Romans 5. It's because of what Jesus has done that we receive the gift of salvation. Now, let's, let's continue on here a little bit, and I want to come back to it, and I want to hit it from just a little bit different angle and just kind of keep talking through, th- through some Scripture and see where we, where we can end up. But I still think this is a true statement. There is nothing you've done that God's grace cannot overcome. There's nothing you've done that God's grace cannot overcome. But we live in this world where we have two conflicting ideas. The first one is this. We don't need grace because we get to decide what's right and wrong. So we live in a world where I think we, I, we, we think I get to decide the truth. I get to decide what's right for me, what's right for me may not be right for you, and we're okay with that. We're okay with people saying this is, this is my truth, this is what's right for me, it may not be right for you, and you know, whatever, go live your life however you want. So we don't need grace because we're deciding what right and wrong is. And then there's another camp, there's this other world that says because we have grace, we don't have to worry about right and wrong. So we don't need grace because we get to decide what's right and wrong, or because we have grace, we don't have to worry about right and wrong. But what is the truth? The truth is, yes, we need grace. Every single one of us needs grace because of the sin in our life. We need the grace that is offered to us through Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection. But the truth is also that we need God's help to live righteous lives. When you think about living like a disciple, when you think about living like a follower of Jesus Christ, most often I think what comes to mind is this, I have to do these things. Well, it would come, I gotta get up and I gotta pray. I have to get up and I have to read my Bible. I have to do this, I have to do, I have to do justice, I have to care for the poor, I have to care for the orphans. And this would be, I have to do all of these things so that I can secure my salvation, which you th- have to understand is really ironic if you believe as a Calvinist and you're trying to earn your salvation when you're trying to work out your righteousness. So think about that because that is a contradiction. But... It is the Spirit of God that actually empowers us to live righteous lives. We just spent a lot of time going through 1 John talking about that concept, so hopefully you're familiar with this. First, the the first world, we don't need grace because we get to decide what's right and wrong. You should know my teaching on that by now. There is truth. There is absolute truth. There is a right and a wrong. God designed it. God laid that out for us. And so we don't get to decide what's right and wrong. God decided that a long time ago, and he laid it out for us in Scripture, and then he gave us the Spirit to empower us to live that out. We do need grace, and there is right and wrong. But there's this, other, there's this other belief that actually crept into the early church, and we see several instances of it happening throughout the New Testament and Paul writing to address it. And it's because we have grace, we don't have to worry about right and wrong. This is also a false belief, a false teaching. So we're going to continue on in Romans to get Paul's answer to that question. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Remember, he has just finished at the end of Romans chapter 5, saying that the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So if you stop right at that statement, you could say, well, you know what? Uh, the more I sin, the more grace I received. So shouldn't I go off and sin more so that I can receive more grace? Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means! Exclamation point. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. And he goes on to explain why, which is consistent with what we just studied in the book of 1 John. We are those who have died to sin. We're dead to that. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So we talk about that every time we do baptism. So when somebody goes under the water, they're being buried with Christ through baptism. That's we're buried into his death through baptism. So we're buried in baptism. We're dead now to this idea of sin. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So buried with him through baptism, raised to new life in Christ. Buried with him through baptism, raised to new life in Christ. So we're dead to that. How can we continue to live in it any longer? We're dead. How can we live in it any longer? Paul's saying, so don't go out and just sin a bunch so that you can get more grace. That's, that's not the way that it works. Let's go to a little bit more, uh, more, more difficult teaching. Hebrews chapter 10. This is just the Sunday morning where we're going to heap all of the deep theology on you and go out uh, swimming in it and study it yourself. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, verse uh, 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. That seems pretty clear. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Insulted the spirit of grace. What does that sound like? Blasphemy is insult. Anyone who speaks blasphemy against the spirit blasphemy who has insulted the spirit of grace for we know him who said it is mine to avenge I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people verse 31 it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God that's heavy isn't it I mean that that's hard that, that weighs on us really really heavy. And in fact, a lot of people who would believe in a once-saved, always-saved theology don't like the book of Hebrews because it says things like this. But to me, I think it's a both-and. It's a both, yes, we, when we are in Christ, we are secure in our walk with Christ. 
but can we choose to walk away? Yes, you can choose. You have free will. You can choose to walk away from Christ after you have received Christ. This is, this is the teaching that, that a Calvinist would say. No, you cannot choose to walk away because once you've tasted it, you cannot choose against it. But that's not consistent with what all of Scripture teaches. I believe that once you've once you put your faith in Jesus Christ and as long as you spend your time focusing on, on living that out, you don't have anything to worry about. I need to uh, get to... One of my teachings here from uh, my professor, he said, this was at Multnomah, he said about this idea of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, he says, if you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, you probably haven't committed it yet. That was his way of kind of putting the question at ease to us. He says, if you're still worried about committing it, you probably haven't committed it yet. So keep that in mind as we continue the song, because I feel like this is getting really heavy, and I wanted to give you just a little bit of a breather. But those who follow, follow Christ are dead to sin. I'm, I'm about to wrap up here, which you know means uh, really absolutely nothing. I still have a whole page of notes. Um, <laughs> but those who follow Christ want to give you a little bit of hope and then just burst your balloon. <laughs> we cannot live in sin any longer because we are in Christ. We're dead to that. When sin knocks on the door, we don't have to answer it. That's what we've taught all through the book of 1 John because that's what he taught. So when sin knocks, we don't have to answer and we shouldn't answer it. I think, though, that we need to have a little more caution when it comes to sinning. We, as the church in North America, have been really focused on grace, and appropriately so, because grace is truly and literally amazing. It's astounding that we would receive God's grace. We ought to focus on it, but grace is not the whole picture. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word referring to Jesus Christ The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, grace, but also truth. And what does Scripture say? The truth of Scripture is this. Paul said, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We need to take sin a little more seriously. What does Scripture say? What's the truth of Scripture? It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's the truth. I think we need to maybe be a little bit more serious about sin in our lives. Is there grace when we sin? Absolutely. Is there grace when we sin as a believer of Jesus Christ? Yes, absolutely. Do we still make mistakes and bad choices? Yes, we do. Are those forgiven? Yes, we receive grace for those. But I think if we continually go back to the same sins without working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to overcome that sin, then we start to run the danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I think this could be the beginning of the unforgivable sin. One teacher that I listened to on this topic, he talked about how this, what this uh, sin boils down to is ignoring the prompts of the Holy Spirit to walk away from something we know to be sin, but we want to do it anyway. That when the Spirit is prompting us, when, when, when we're about to do something that is wrong and the Spirit prompts us, says, don't do that, don't do that, and you feel it in your heart and in your mind and in your soul, you shouldn't be doing this, and you feel this strong desire not to do it, and you do it anyway, we're starting to go against the Spirit of God who is in us to prompt us to do what is right. The thing is, it's a still, small voice. It's, it's quiet. We have to learn how to listen to it. 
But I think if we start training ourselves to ignore the Spirit, we're actually ignoring the very nature that we have now been born into. If we train ourselves to ignore the Spirit's promptings and leadings in our lives, we're actually training ourselves to ignore the nature that we've been born into. And we're going back to the old things. By the way, the Spirit doesn't just prompt us to avoid sin. The Spirit prompts us to say things to one another. We shouldn't ignore that prompting either. We should not ignore the, the, the prompt of the Spirit to speak a word of encouragement or to speak a word of truth, to speak a word of admonishment, to speak a word to someone because the Spirit has prompted us. We need to follow those promptings too. The Spirit will also prompt us to care for widows and orphans and the poor and the less fortunate. And when the Spirit is prompting you to do that, you need to give in to that prompting and let the Spirit guide you. That's, that's the Spirit of God training you and retraining you to follow Jesus Christ. Give in to that prompt and ignore the other one. If you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, you probably still haven't committed it yet. Right, yeah, and that's a, that's a passage. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 is another a popular one in this debate between, um, between once saved, always saved, Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, and it's a hard one, and it's one that a lot of people don't know what to do with, but if you take it at what it says, if you read it for what it says, then, yeah, if we, if we continue to ignore the prompts of the Holy Spirit when he's prompting us not to sin, we continue to crucify him, that would be pretty hard to stomach, wouldn't it? Follow the prompts of the right and ignoring the prompts of the wrong, we're going to continue to grow in what is called sanctification. We start to become more and more set apart for God's work and less and less like the world. So as long as you haven't grown numb, grown numb, you're probably still in good shape. And if you're not sure, if you're numb or not, talk to someone. Talk to me after the service. If, if you feel like you've gone numb, to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, let's talk to someone, but starting with the desire to want to obey the Holy Spirit is a great place. By the way, this is why you need to read your Bibles. This is why we as believers of Christ need to read our Bibles because we need to be retrained. We need to learn how to think. We have to be transformed, and the way we're transformed is by Romans chapter 12, the renewing of our minds, shedding the way of the world and renewing our minds to the way of Christ. One of the most important ways for us to be renewed is to read the Bible and let Scripture soak in and teach. And we ask ourselves when we're reading, not just, okay, what does this say, but how do I live this out? And as we start to live these things out in our lives, we will start to find ourselves applying truth, and I think we start to then understand when the Spirit prompts us and what is right and what is wrong. But it's hard to know what right and wrong is if you never read the Bible to know what's right and what is wrong. You cannot rely on me. You cannot rely on any teacher to teach you everything you need to know. You have to get in there for yourselves and let Scripture saturate your heart and your mind. One distinction I think we need to make as we wrap all of this up, because it seems very clear to me, and this is where we struggle on a theological level, but it seems very clear to me that Jesus and Paul and the writer of Hebrews are talking about people, about the unforgivable sin being committed by people who have already believed. We want to, we want to kind of ignore that part because it doesn't always fit in our theology, but it seems very clear to me that Jesus, Paul, and the author of Hebrews are talking about people who have believed and rejecting it, and that is the unforgivable sin. But for those who have not yet received the Spirit, there is nothing that can keep them from grace. 
So if you have not yet received the gift of Christ, if you have not yet put your faith in it, there is nothing that you've done that God's grace cannot overcome. That is a true statement. This is the truth of God's word. If you are here and you feel like, I want to follow Christ, I want to believe Christ, but you just don't know what I've done, well, that's, that's nothing. God's grace can overcome that. God's grace can overcome anything because God overcomes. So for you as an unbeliever, you may feel like, well, I can't, I can't come to Christ because I've just done too much wrong. Well, that's not true. I would argue until I'm blue in the face that that's not true, that there's nothing that you can do that cannot be overcome. All of the worst, evilest people in the world, if they repented and turned away from what they had done and turned towards Jesus Christ, would receive God's grace. Think of the list, the list of all of the most evil and vile people of this world. The truth is, if they had decided to repent of all of that sin they had committed and walk away from that and walk towards the grace of Jesus Christ, they would receive God's grace. We don't like that in human minds. We want people to pay for what they've done, but Jesus Christ paid for what they did. And the payment of Jesus Christ on the cross will overcome it all. There is nothing that can be greater than God's grace. And if you're struggling this morning because you feel like you've started to grow numb to the prompts of the Holy Spirit, the truth is repentance is true for you too. You repent from those things that you've been walking toward and those degrees you've been shifting away from God toward the world. You repent of that, which repent, the word literally means to turn away. You repent from those things and you just snap back to God. You're under God's grace. But I think I would be doing you a, a disservice and I would be doing the word of God uh, a disservice if I did not teach you that you can choose to walk away. I pray that you never, never, never have the desire. I pray that we become so grounded in our faith that, the, that the, not just the lures of this world, but the trials and the struggles and the tribulation of this world have nothing to compare with what we have been given in the promise of what is yet to come. And if you feel like what the world offers or what you're going through is just too tough and you don't want to trust in God anymore because how could a, how could a good God let me go through this? You need to read your Bible. You need to go and read your scripture more because Jesus promised that troubles and trials would come. But he also promised that he had already overcome all of these things. And by the nature of the spirit of Christ living in us, we too are overcomers. And this is not only the prompt of the spirit that grows up in us, but it is the love that grows up in us. It is the joy that grows up in us, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness to carry on even when it's hard, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. And this is the fruit of the Spirit. There's nothing you've done that God's grace cannot overcome. I don't feel like I've uh, quite done this topic justice, and there's a whole lot that we need to talk about if you still have questions. If you have questions, I would love for you to talk to me. You can talk to Jim, talk to Rob, talk to us after the service. We'll do our best to address them, help you understand them. Um, and just talk to one another. Let the Spirit kind of lead you and, and dig into Scripture and see what it says, because there is grace that abounds.
Let's all stand together. We'll close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace, and I thank you for your truth. I thank you for all the areas in my life where I'm not yet living up to the truth and the standards you have created that you still cover me in your grace. I thank you that in spite of all of my imperfections, all of my brokenness, all of my shortcomings, you still see me through the righteousness of your son and not through my unrighteousness. I thank you that when I try to and I attempt to live out righteous standards on my own behalf and and those reach you as filthy rags, that you still overcome my own self-righteousness and you see me through the righteousness, the true righteousness of your son. I thank you for all of these wonderful gifts and I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the truth that the promise of what we're walking toward is greater than the lure and the deception of what we're walking away from. And I thank you that if we will have eyes to see and let the Spirit lead us in where you want us to go, then we will see the promise of the future is so much greater than what we're leaving behind. Father, I pray for anyone here who is struggling under this idea and feeling like, like they just have, they still have things they want to do. They have stuff they got to sow in this world. They've just got things they got to get out of their system. I pray, Father, that your spirit would open their mind to hear your truth this morning and speak to them that the truth of the grace of Jesus Christ is greater than whatever it is they still desire. I pray that anyone who is struggling because they feel like they just can't do right no matter how hard they try, that they would find grace to carry on and that they would persevere. They would have the patience to persevere through these struggles and that they would see that it is the work of perseverance that produces in us the character and nature of God. For all of us, Father, I pray that you would bury us, overwhelm us, saturate us, put us in the depth of your grace, the depth of your love, and to live that out in our day-to-day lives. I thank you for what you've done for us, and I pray that as we spend time now looking toward the cross and remembering what you did, that our hearts would be filled to overflowing with the grace of Jesus Christ and the truth that our sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen.